Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, Sam Baker. I'm delighted to welcome back one of my most popular guests ever, Philippa Perry. Or should I say Lady Perry? Philippa is an artist, psychotherapist, agony aunt and TV presenter. But she has become best known for her smash hit book, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read which sold over 2 million copies and spent a stonking 41 weeks in the bestseller lists. Thanks to that book and her agony column in The Observer, she has become known as the voice of sanity. Last time we spoke, I remember saying she should turn her particular brand of wisdom to the other relationships in our lives. Well, now she has. In the book you want everyone you love to read, and maybe a few you don't, Philippa brings her no-nonsense wisdom to everything from how we love to how we argue or don't, if you're me. And then at 60, you think, if only my body would work, (laughs) you know, then I could um, climb Everest or whatever it is you want to do then. Philippa and her cat, Kevin, joined me to talk about how physical aging sucks, why it took her until she was 50 to realise a thing didn't have to be perfect to be worth doing, and how she learned to ditch the shoulds. She also talks about prioritising enjoyment, how to change the stories we tell ourselves, and why learning to please yourself can make your relationships better. How are you well now? Um, I feel very old. I do feel very old in my body. Is that because of the operation? Well, that took a lot out of me, but my ankles have gone, the knees have gone. I've got one good hip. <laughs> that's the one that's been mended. So I do feel, I do feel quite frail, and oh, wow. I've got, I've got really good skin, so I look young. But on the mm. inside, it's terrible. Oh no! When did that happen? When did that start? Do you think? I've been ignoring it for decades, sort of niggles and, you know, I've just been in denial for a long time about how uh, crooked I am. But it's all come home to roost now. That's fine. It's age appropriate. No, is it though? I'm 65, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to have arthritis. Oh, you're totally allowed. Have you got arthritis? Yeah, my ankles and my knees and my hips. And my fingers and... Oh, shit. Yeah. It's fine. Look, it's not too bad. Oh, but that's it. just it's like my own reaction then. It was like, oh, yeah, you might not be able to walk. But when you said your fingers and I was like, oh, she won't be able to type, I immediately thought, oh, that's terrible. Because it was about <laughs> work. That's so... I can type very, very fast. Yeah. No worries about that. Shall we start by talking about ageing then since we're on it? Have we started? Let's start, by all means. Actually, I should say, Sausage is hanging out in here because he's a big fan of yours. 
Where's sausage? Where is sausage? My, hang on, let me let me just uh, I'll find you sausage. Sausage, sausage. Kevin's mum. Oh, hello, sausage. He's like, who is that woman? Where where's Kevin? That's I'm here for Kevin. You want to see Kevin? I know exactly where Kevin is. Sausage is here for Kevin. Kevin is. Oh no, he's not here. He's. Uh, I thought he was on. I thought he was on the spare bed. I oh, know he's he's gone. It's obviously gone out. People to see places to go. Well, I thought he was asleep there for the morning, but no, no, he's but he's a busy cat, Kevin, isn't he? He's got you know, he's got to keep his people happy. He's probably got to go and scrounge some more breakfasts off the neighbours. The number of times that we're kind of out there because we're in a flat and we've just got this tiny outside space, and then there's it's in Edinburgh, so there's like a lane at the back, you know, where the big houses used to have the stables. And you kind of find him out there and the people who walk up and down there are like, oh, hi. You're like, oh, God, how many breakfasts does he actually eat? Mm. Kevin's definitely on the chonk side these days. (laughs) Aren't we all, babe? Aren't we all? I'm going to start by asking you about sanity, because when I was researching you and reading your book, it's just like everywhere I turn, the main description of you is how sane you are. And it's like Philippa Perry, voice of sanity. How, does, how do you feel to be so sane? Yeah, your eyes are like bulging. It doesn't feel particularly sane on the inside, you know, when I find my keys in the fridge, does it? No, not really. <laughs> I think sanity is the minimalization or absence of neuroses. Yeah. And... We all of us have sort of belief systems that come from our experience. And I think sanity is to challenge these belief systems from time to time, because what was true in the past might not be working for us in the present. So if I am sane, it's just because I do that. When did you get sane? Sane uh Well, I think it helped that, to me, it felt like the people around me when I was growing up had quite a few quirks. Look, I could sort of see them operating from like what seemed to me to be kind of crazy beliefs, such as other people are bad (laughs) or or, or, or really strange prejudices and things. So I thought, hmm, that doesn't really work for me. So I suppose I started with doing the sort of comparison thing. Was that your family? Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how, I suppose what interests is interesting is that because we all grow up with our families, with our, with their, their weirdnesses and their, their things that are, things that are normal to us. Yeah. It's very difficult. It's very yeah. difficult to see that they are a bit weird and a bit quirky. And of course, I haven't done a complete wonderful job. I have got quirks of my mother and my father in me. From my father, I've, I've inherited, I've got to be the life and soul of the party or I'm nothing, which is really hard work at times. And I oh, exhausting. Sometimes catch myself sort of, do, sort of going into performance mode rather than real mode. And I think, bring it back, yeah. bring it back. Otherwise, A, I won't connect with people and B, I'll be exhausted. And from my mother, I've sort of inherited this sort of fussy, worrying thing. Mm. Um, and when I start doing it, uh, my husband just calls me Nance, which is my mother's name. <laughs> I'm worried that we've only got six napkins of this colour, and that means we've got to have a beige one instead of all all of them being white. Ugh. And he goes Nance, and he's like, "Yeah, of course it doesn't really matter what colour the bloody napkins are. You know, it's it's just 
I've inherited that sort of why would it matter? If you stop to be sane, it it doesn't matter. So your mum, Nance, she struggled with ageing, didn't she? Well, I think everybody does to some extent. But she was, I think she was devastated and grieving for her loss of youthful beauty. She used to bemoan that quite a lot. I think maybe too much emphasis in our culture is is given to the the values that we mm. put on youthful beauty and then when you don't have it anymore it's sort of like well am I what am I for then luckily I was never beautiful so I never I never had that problem <laughs> when I got older I think it's it's interesting though, isn't it because I I feel the same I feel like I never ticked the kind of stereotypical like pretty girl boxes so it wasn't my currency so I didn't feel the loss in that way but you still feel a kind of it is a sense of loss isn't it whether it's like knees that don't creak or yeah I kind of wish I had appreciated my body when it functioned better a bit more than I did I did really take the fact that I could run for granted and now I'm grateful if I can manage a walk around the block with a stick and leaning on someone. So, oh man, Phil, it's all right. I'm alive. But how do you stay? Because I'm someone who goes outside, goes for. I mean, I'm not an exerciser, but I am a walker, just to like stay sane. Well, luckily I can ride a bicycle, and that doesn't seem to bother me at all. How weird! So, because that's not well. It's not so weight bearing, mm. is it? Because the bicycle's sort of taking your weight. And so I can cycle just about anywhere and I've got an electric bike. So that's my mobility scooter, except it doesn't look like a mobility scooter. No, it looks cool. Yeah. So uh, I think that really does keep me sane. And when I had a hip replacement and I couldn't ride my bike for six weeks, that was really getting me down, sort of going on the bus and taking taxis everywhere. It felt like so dependent. I couldn't bear it. Yeah, it's that that it's that you couldn't get yourself around, wasn't it? As much as it's like yeah. Yeah, your independence was taken away. Yeah, I think that's something I've I've got to work on because I think being gracefully dependent as we get older is a skill, and it made looking after my parents very difficult in their old age because they didn't want to surrender to dependency, and so they do things like. I can I can service the Argo. Yeah. The minute you started talking about that, I could start to feel myself getting really uncomfortable. Like, oh, I don't even want to think about that in relation to me. I had a, a lesson in it recently when I had a hip replacement and so I needed looking after for at least a fortnight, you know, because I really was quite um, disabled after that. And my daughter very kindly came to look after me and I think I was quite good in being dependent, you know, letting her do the shopping and the meals and, and making my bed and, and showering me and stuff like that. I think I was quite good, except for I did make one mistake, which was she was doing the washing for me. She was doing everything for me. And I said, oh, don't hang it on the rack, hang it on the line. Uh, and she said, what, you bothered? And I went, I like to see it because I just realised <laughs> One of my pleasures in life was just seeing a pair of pyjamas full of wind on the line. And I felt I felt a terrible loss. And she said I made a, an awful fuss about it. So she did put them on the line, but she felt very grumpy about it. And I realized afterwards it was a bit like one of those 
it was a napkin moment. It didn't matter, you know. It's when you catch yourself doing that, isn't it? Like correcting someone or or moving moving a thing three inches to the left, you know, because that's where you think it should be. Yeah, I mean, it, as long as the bloody washing dries, it doesn't matter where it does it. But at that moment, I think it was because I was physically capable of hanging the washing on the line. That was my frustration. And I sort of took it out on her, really. Yeah. So when I was reading the book you want everyone you love to read, which I'm so happy you wrote, by the way, because last time we we spoke, you were unsure and you were talking about writing something else. And I remember thinking, oh, please write this book, because I think whilst everybody's got parents, the parenting, I felt like it wasn't for me because I wasn't a parent, even though that wasn't the case when I did actually read it. So I felt like, OK, you might need to write the book for me now, Philippa. Well, have I done that? I've unturned the pages as I've been writing down my notes, but I had, it was properly destroyed. The corners are decimated, which is always a good sign. Oh, good. What I see a lot of women in their 40s and 50s is that they are, they're a really questioning time of their lives, that they're questioning who they are, they're questioning who they want to be, they're questioning what they've got, where they're at, all of those things. Do you think, do you see a lot of that in your, in your practice, in the problems that come into you? What I've seemed to notice is that there seems to be a sort of mini crisis in a lot of people's lives about every 10 years. Mm. And so the first one you get is at 30 years old, uh, you know, from 27 to 33, something somewhere around there. And that crisis is usually about, you know, I thought I knew what I wanted in my life and other people knew what I should have wanted like you know I thought if I trained to be a doctor or, or I or I went to university and became a lawyer or something like that or I just married the man of my dreams and had two children or whatever it, whatever you've been fed to think will make you happy because you we take on almost instructions mm. from our culture as to who we should be and how we should behave and we think if we follow those because we've been told to we'll be happy and then the first crisis comes when those haven't really worked out. So what I mean by this is like, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. and so what people have to learn to do is to learn to trust their feelings. Like, how am I feeling right now? And then from that, work out what do I want? And then to go for it. And these feelings can be really inconvenient because they are the sort of unhappiness. You know, I'm unhappy at the office. I hate it here. I'd be much happier mucking out horses or or being a cowboy or something. And so it feels like they've got to let go of some sort of security that that life that is not satisfying them does at least give them. So they have to let go of the security and go for what they want or somehow talk themselves into liking what they've got. And then so you do a sort of adjustment, like, oh, this is the path I need to be on. And then you're on that path for another 10 years, and then it might stop working for you. Like, actually, I think I am a lesbian. I'm afraid, unfortunately, I've got to break up this family with this nice man and these lovely children and and be myself and be a lesbian or whatever it is. You know, that might happen at 40, and there'll be another one at 50. And then at 60, you think, if only my body would work, yeah. <laughs> you know, then I could um, climb Everest or whatever it is you want to do then. Did you have one of those moments? Oh, definitely. Definitely had a massive one. 
around about 30, like 27, 30. I was married to a man and I, I kind of realized I, I, I didn't actually like our life together. And, you know, you think, oh, I've got to throw it all in the air. And, you know, I had some therapy. And, and then when I'd sort of changed my life, like I got this lovely new boyfriend and, you know, life, I was going to art school, which is what I wanted to do. You know, I chucked up, I chucked work in and went to art school. That sort of really big volcanic difference. Mm. And then I'd wake up every morning crying. And I'd soon cheer up, but I had this deep sadness in me that sort of would come to me when I was asleep. And I thought, oh, what the f- is this? So then that's when I had to start therapy and find out why I was sad and, you know, what stories I was telling myself and what stories I needed to change in order to get back on track, get back on a different track. So that was my, that was a really big change. And then after that, like around about 40, you know, I'd had a child. I was thinking, I don't want to be a stay-at-home mother anymore. Yeah. You know, so that's another, oh, it would be convenient if I could do it, but I have to maybe do some retraining and, and, and learn to be something else and get another job. So that was sort of like becoming a psychotherapist. And then at 50, I just wanted to write. So that became my sort of crisis and focus. And um, my crisis at the moment is I actually want to paint. When did, is that something you've always wanted to do or has that come into your life in, recently? Well, I did go to, I did go to art mm. school and I found it very difficult to take just making art really seriously. I just felt like, you know, nobody cares if you paint or not. I should do something a bit more worthwhile. So, you know, I I became a therapist, and you know, I got a lot of I got a lot from uh, psychological theories, learning them, applying them, working with people. That that was great. And then I felt like this is so small, just doing two people in a room. I could I could expand it. I could do more people at once. So that I wrote books about it. And so that satisfied that thing. And, th- and then the art has just been knocking on the door. It's sort of like, it's time to take me seriously now. And I think, yeah, I can do it now. I, could, I can take that seriously now. I mean, you could, presumably you could afford to just say, right, I'm not Philippa Perry Agony aunt anymore. Just chuck it all. I could afford to, but I actually enjoy being an Agony aunt for The Observer. And uh, I, I still enjoy writing. I'm not going to stop writing, but I have stopped seeing patients privately. Something had to give. So I don't see uh, private clients anymore. So is Philippa Perry at 80? Is Philippa Perry at 80 an artist? Is that your dream? I hope so. I hope she's alive. Yeah, well, let's take that as red. <laughs> Philippa Perry at 80. Who knows? I'll probably have another crisis. Probably retrain as something, you know, a nurse or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, I can't lift this bedpan. (laughs) How much difference do you think? Because you were an undiagnosed dyslexic for most of your most of your life, really, weren't you? How much difference do you think that made to your approach to getting to where you've got now? I think because I've sort of had quite a few different jobs and guises. Like you know, I've, I've been a broadcaster as well. I think that is because. I mean, I've never been formally um, 
diagnosed as ADHD. I prefer the I prefer the term scatterbrain. Yeah. And so I do kind of you know do a lot of things at once, and I think you know being dyslexic, it's you know you've got several trains of thought going. Well, I have several trains of thought going on at once, which doesn't make me particularly mindful, but it does mean that I can come up with ideas. I suppose. Did. Were you kind of driven a bit, do you think? by? I mean, I know everybody's different, but I certainly know someone else who is late diagnosed dyslexic, but they became kind of pretty obsessed by the fact that they'd been, instead of being, because of our ages, instead of being, you know, well, you have a different way of learning or maybe, you know, that academic environment isn't good for you. Um, they became really obsessed with, I'll show you. I'll show you I'm not stupid because of that kind of one size fits all education of the 60s and 70s. I always thought I was stupid for a very long time. And now I don't think I am as stupid as I thought I was. <laughs> Almost sometimes quite bright. I think you've proved that. <laughs> but was a lot of what you've done about proving that or not? No, I don't think so. It was just, I think my main motivation in life is to enjoy myself as much as possible. And I really do think a lot of people should take that on. Enjoyment is so important. I don't mean like life's one big party, although I do like a party. I mean, you can enjoy yourself from, you know, doing work you want to do and finding it satisfying. That's what I mean by enjoying myself. I, th I think it's important to have that as a priority if, if you can. So many of us just aren't brought up like that, are we? brought up to tick all the boxes to with the shoulds you know and i've i've made a bit of money now and so i can give a bit to my daughter and if i was ever given money by my parents they said you've got to save that up for your old age mm. thinking that i was never capable of earning my own money and actually earned quite a lot thanks yeah. so when i if i give my daughter a present of money now i go enjoy yourself with this enjoy it and I just want to give her that permission yeah. to, to do that. But I think her grandfather's, you've got to save it, has sort of got into her, her, her blood somehow. And uh, she's not at all um, flippant with it. But, you know, she does sort of, she will go on a package holiday to Crete. So I'm very pleased about that. Oh, well, <laughs> that's something. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's just like, it's that kicking. I think one of the things I've become really aware of in the last five or six years is how ingrained a lot of those things that you get from, well, from family, but from school and from the media when you're growing up about, you know, being a good girl and... Saving up. Yeah, saving up and, you know, basically getting your head down, being perfect, you know, not making a show of yourself. Yeah, it's difficult. You've got be perfect on the one hand and don't make a show of yourself on the other. So what's the point of being perfect if you're not going to show it off? <laughs> yeah. Be perfect is such a harmful one. It's so damaging, isn't it? Because if it's not perfect, it's not enough. And what even is perfect? I think that was a huge realisation for me when I wanted to write my first book. And I was reading other books and I just thought, I think I can do better than this. But I still thought I mine had to be perfect. And then mm. it just sort of dawned on me, it just has to be good enough. And I just thought, oh, my God, it was just like, because I hadn't realized I got, it, you've got to be perfect um, as it's something bringing me down. But when I got rid of it, 
that's when I started being creative and, and uh, you know, I wrote um, my first book was a graphic novel about psychotherapy. And it was just so freeing to just to put some words down and not have to find the perfect ones, just have some ideas for drawings, but not the perfect ones. And of course, it was good enough. And it was just it was just a, a eureka moment. I can sort of almost remember where I was when it dawned on me. I think I was playing the piano badly, but enjoying myself. And then I thought, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect. Then I realized that I applied to everything. I was like, ha, I can write the book then. It was, I was 50. How can we get, you were 50 when that happened. Yeah. How can we get that eureka moment? I don't know. How does that happen? Where does it come from? I think it comes from everything you've ever read, everything, every person you've ever spoken to. I think it sort of um, just falls into place sometimes. Obviously, other times it doesn't. I was thinking about, there's a, a letter that you quote in the book about that. And this is obviously, a, this is, struck a really personal chord with me, about the woman who had always wanted to be a writer, but then she was a writer and her books didn't, weren't, her books weren't bestsellers. I mean, who even knows? Oh, they sold. And so therefore, she wasn't a writer, she was a failed writer. Mm. And I just think there's so much of that, isn't it? There's so much of like, I didn't, I wasn't the very best. I wasn't the be a bestseller. I wasn't number one. Therefore, I might as well not have done it at all. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of, uh, we live in quite a narcissistic society and it's a sort of narcissistic mindset that if I'm not the top, if I'm not the best, I'm nothing. Rather than if I do my best, which is not about being the best, it's like you in competition with yourself. If I do my best, and I find the work satisfying, and other people think it's good enough to publish, I mean, that should be enough, shouldn't it? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Where do you think the comparison thing comes from? Oh, maybe it's because children 
are put in class order, who's at the top of the class, who's at the bottom, Mm. you know, who can run the fastest. We're in a sort of, it's a competitive culture and people find coming second like a failure. I was talking to a man the the other day uh, who was a really, really good violinist. And I said, why did you give it up? And he said, well, I wasn't in the top six of the country, so why would I continue? And I just thought, because it's fun playing the violin. Yeah. And then he started a company and he seems to think his company is the best. So he's very happy now. But I was just thinking, this the best thing. Mm. The other thing about the best is that it is really externally referenced, isn't it? Yeah. So what I mean by that is you're just imagining what other people are thinking about you and whether they think you're the best or not. And it's not internally referenced, which is just thinking about what something feels like. And I think if we if we miss out the internal referencing, if we miss out, is, does this feel good to me? Then we're we're living a very thin life if we're just sort of doing it with sort of comparing ourselves where we are compared to other people. It's a really it's a big mindset change, isn't it? Because you know, so many, and I'm going to slightly generalize, but so many women in particular are brought up to put other people first, to people please, just to like sum it up, that then to turn around at this point, as I see so many women doing actually in their 50s, to turn around at this point and go, actually, how does this make me feel? Not, is this going to make you feel? Which has probably been my primary driver. It's very difficult to find, for women to find out what they want to do when they realise like this, because they're all their life they've been sort of like, please my mother and father, please my boyfriends, please my husband, please my children. And then what do I want? And why isn't someone doing that for me? And they never are. And so to, to put yourself as a priority feels dangerous. It feels like if I don't do this people pleasing, you know, will I be an outcast? And what actually usually happens is that when you please yourself, paradoxically, you seem to please more people. Because if you're trying to please other people, you're pushing back yourself. And so those other people haven't got a you to have a relationship with. If you're pleasing yourself to some extent and you're noticing what you feel and going for what you want, there's a separate person there for another person to have a relationship with. I mean, have you seen sort of couples where one person is trying to please the other so much that the other is completely bored because there's no one there for them to have a relationship because one of them is a complete placator, pleaser, placator. Where are you? Don't run away. It's a way of hiding, isn't it? Pleasing and placating. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I think, and I, because I have just read your book, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like I've got a bit too much information because my immediate reaction to that is like, yeah, but where did the pleasing start? Maybe they started pleasing that person because that person was easier to deal with. But then that's all about making, it's all about making it someone else's job, isn't it? Someone else's responsibility, not yours. Mm. And I, th- I think it, 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 it starts off with, conditional love rather than unconditional love. So if you're loved unconditionally as a child, you can be yourself. 
If you're loved conditionally, so you're not loved when you're crying, you're not loved when you're angry, you're only loved when you've got a nice little bow in your hair and you're being really sweet and sitting on the edge of your chair and, and smiling nicely and being grateful for things. You tend to go in the, the role you're encouraged a bit more because it's too difficult being angry. It's too difficult being sad. So you think those parts of you are bad. It's just another layer of neuro- neurosis our, our culture gives to us. Oh, man. And little boys are allowed to be a bit angrier than little girls are. Probably not enough, but, you know, they are allowed to be angry. Yeah, I mean, anger is a real, it's a, it's a real buzz topic, I think, isn't it, for so many women who have, like, never been allowed, allowed to be angry and then never allowed themselves to be angry. And then there's, like, an all or nothing switch, which is horrible, because if you go from nothing to naught to ten, the anger just feels like it poisons you with cortisol and adrenaline. And it's just like, oh, I can't get rid of it. It's horrible. But, you know, the first brick of anger is just saying, no, that doesn't work for me in a calm way. And it's just a little bit of anger, just a tiny bit of notch, like going from naught to one that allows you to sort of put a boundary down for yourself rather than thinking you have to please everybody. So you can say, no, it doesn't work for me to do the podcast at 6 a.m. I have to do it at 10 or whatever it is. I promise I will never ask you to do a podcast at 6 a.m. It's never going to happen. <laughs> well, it might if you're from America. They all have very, very funny times. They want me to do things. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. God. And you do say, you are you good at saying no? I'm getting better. I might go a bit too far the other way and say it a bit loudly. Rather than, rather than no, that doesn't work for me, I go, no! <laughs> no! Because I've got all the weight of all the yeses I've said in the past still weighing down on me, and, and I'm still angry about that. Maybe I haven't worked through them, so maybe a bit of that anger sometimes leaks out when I'm just trying to do a calm no. Yeah. I've got a friend who's, whose no is lovely. It's, she goes, that's not going to happen. I just think yeah. I've never managed it myself, but yeah. So, sorry, my brain just brain fogged on me. Shall I have a go then? Yeah. Oh, do you want to? Go on then. Well, you are one of the very few readers of my book, the book you want everyone you love to read, and some of those you don't. And I haven't spoken to many people that have read it, and I just wondered how it left you. Oh, don't have to people please remember. Yeah, no. Well, it's slightly different because I read it in the context of what I was going to ask you from it. So it is slightly different, but it struck a lot of chords, which are not all, not a hundred percent comfortable. Oh, good. But probably a hundred percent right. Oh, careful. I do say in... Or 90% right, maybe. I do say in the book, nobody's right all the time. Not even me, I think I said. I think it's the things when... Well, it's like that. Like we were just talking about, say, uh, external validation versus internal validation. Yeah. I'm Even though I am much, much better at saying no, not wanting to do things just because someone else has done it or had it. Um, It's still quite hard not to look at social media and go, why did their book get to 
45 when mine only got to 63. You know, I still do. I know I still do that. I've definitely got a lot better at it. And noticeably since perimenopause and menopause, I've got much, much better at going, do you know what? I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to run a business and be responsible for 30 people, you know, for instance. Yeah. But yeah, it struck loads of chords and it left me, it left me thinking, it left me thinking I'll read it again when I'm not going to interview you, which is good. Oh, great. Good. Yeah. And it is really, it's the book I wanted you to write as well. So I'm very happy about that because you really weren't sure when we last spoke. It's, it's a different book because the book you wish yeah, it got like, I'd say 35 years of research in it. My research mm. from um, being a child, a parent and a psychotherapist, listening to hundreds of people and listening to their childhoods and, 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 and looking for patterns in our society and what needed putting right. Because I was thinking of like, it's society I want to change. I, I want to change the mm. of, of parenting. I, I want it to be about a relationship between the parent and the child and not about a project to perfect sort of thing. So that was, I had a real mission with that. With this book, I didn't have a mission as such. I just had the last four years of my life. And in those four years, all the problems people have have brought to me and what they seem to need to hear. And so although the problems are very specific, what I've tried to do is pull back and see if there's any generalizations that that help all of us what what can we learn from this problem and uh, how can we apply it to our own lives that's the sort of thing i've done and some things do crop up again and again and one of the things is the fantasies we all have about what other people think of us and how this <laughs> in turn affects how we feel and we can start to have a relationship with another person without even talking to them because we're having such a fancy mm. conversation in our head with them. It's as though we think we know them when we don't. And so we're not very good as human beings of staying with, I don't know what that person thinks. I don't know what they feel. And so one of the things I found that really helps, if you're going to have a fantasy about what somebody else is thinking, make it a good one. yeah. <laughs> Because it never is, is it? It's always bad. It's just a sw- it's just a little switch in your brain. If you're going to have premonition of what's going to happen, make it a good one. Because having a premonition of something of some disaster that happens uh, just makes you worried and miserable, and it doesn't help you if a disaster does happen. You know, apart from being able to go smugly, I told you so. <laughs> yeah. I really don't think that's paid back enough from all the worry and anxiety. So, yeah, so that was that was one of the things I took away from the last four years, that people were doing this a lot and uh, I wanted them to stop. I think I remember someone in a, one of my very first jobs, somebody saying, like a boss saying to me something, I don't know if this is the exact words, but basically something like, oh, I basically I always expect the worst and then I'm not disappointed. Mm. And Against my better judgment, that really sunk in. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for it, but I have noticed that people kind of dwell on it too much. I mean, if expecting the worst, that's not too bad. What I'm talking about is believing the worst. Yeah. So there's, there's a sort of difference, isn't there? 
How do we stop that, do you think? By noticing it. By realising you're doing it, yeah. Once we've noticed we're doing it, then yippee, we don't have to do it anymore. Another thing that I get a lot of emails about, of course, are family disputes Mm. between husband and wife, child and parent or or sister and brother or something. And a thing that comes up again and again and again is the different approaches we all have to how to deal with problems. And it looks like there's uh, people that like to think about something first, people that like to do things about things Mm. first, and people that like to feel things about things first. So you've got a feeler and a doer, and they're arguing about how to paint the living room or something. The feeler wants to try out the different paint colors and see how they feel. And the doer just wants to get going. Yeah. And so they argue with reasons for this rather than acknowledging who they each are. I mean, I've chosen a very trivial subject, but when it's something deeper, it, 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 can, it can feel really make or break because one of them doesn't realize that the other one's a feeler and the other one doesn't realize that the other one's a doer. And there's there's thinkers and beers as well, but it's, it's feeling and doing that have the most clashes. And so I've come up in the book with a few examples of how disputes can just melt away once we understand the other person approaches it from a different mindset. So there's those sort of things in the book. It's sort of like fine details rather than the book you wish was more this, these are the fundamentals of relationship and the book you want is, I'm, I'm dotting the I's and crossing the T's, it's, it's more detailing. It's not a practical book, but there is a lot of takeout, if you know what I mean. Oh, I'm not telling you how to live your life. No, but there's a lot of, I think that, I think it will leave people with a lot to think about. And it definitely, now you're saying it's, think, it's definitely a thinkers and doers things. Basically, what a doer might see is just moaning when you want to get something off your chest and the other person just gives you a solution. It's like, well, what you need to do is this. And you're like, oh, I don't want to do anything. I just want you to listen to me. It's so frustrating for both parties that when it's not understood, this is not about getting a fix. All you have to do is listen. And once the fixer knows that all they have to do is listen, it takes so much weight off their shoulders as well. It's marvellous that. It's just such a simple solution, isn't it? Just listen, don't fix. It's great. The more I think about it, the more it's it's so weird because a lot of people are brought up to, you know, please other people, keep other people happy, rightly or wrongly. And then you're in the context of a relationship and you're not, and you never think what might the other person need out of this. So it's like those two things completely miss each other yeah. it's like I, mean, I know someone who's I used to work with and I remember for their wedding anniversary her husband bought her a mobile phone charger now on the face of it that's like not not an ideal present yeah and she was really it really really pissed off but where he was coming from was I see that you only have one mobile phone charger and if you had one at work as well as at home that would be really good for you and it would make your life a lot easier. So I've noticed this and I'm going to buy you one. And this was kind of quite a long time ago. So it was when mobile mobile phone charges were a bit more expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, like now I'm 
a lot older, I can look at that and think, oh, poor guy, because what he was, he was showing his love in his way. Yeah. She just wanted a bloody big bouquet of flowers sent to the office. So she, <laughs> and instead she had to come in and say, oh, X brought me a mobile phone charger. It's like, I feel yeah. quite sorry for him, really. But on the other hand, he was thinking, what would I like in her position? That's true. That's true. And so it's all very complex. I call those things love knots, which is if you really love me, you'd know what I want, you know, without actually saying what you want. So she's sort of sulking, but she hasn't made it clear to him the sort of things and surprises or whatever that she wants. Um, So how this first occurred to me was like I, I had a I was seeing a couple. And uh, she was convinced that he didn't love her anymore. And he was rapidly becoming to the decision because of all this pressure that maybe she was right. <laughs> and what's, I unpicked it all. And what started it was she was ill and she said, all I want you to do is just bring me some grapes home. And he forgot. Mm. She said, this means you don't love me. And I said, no, this means he forgot the grapes. <laughs> That's it. And then we could put a full stop there. It's unfortunate he forgot the grapes, but it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. And he did go out and get the grapes immediately on coming home again. So, you know, he was obviously trying to make up for it. But that, that, made, that started her being suspicious. And then they sort of needled each other. For, and, and once we got, if someone forgets your birthday, it means they forgot your birthday. It doesn't mean they're an evil bastard who only cares about themselves. It's difficult. It's difficult because the thinking is obviously, but if you cared about me, you wouldn't have forgotten my birthday. Yeah, but I come from a family where we never even celebrated birthdays, so they don't mean as much to me. So I keep forgetting they mean so much to you. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to get another layer off. And this is why you're so good at your job. Well, I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) There are some really good psychotherapists out there. Really, really good. Yeah. Right. I'm going to ask you the questions I always ask. I know you've answered them before plenty of times. but I, I wonder if I'm going to answer them in the same way. People really rarely do, actually. So it's, a, okay. it's kind of it's really fascinating. What does that teach us about ourselves, that people rarely answer the same questions in the same way? It teaches us that we are plastic and we aren't made out of stone doesn't it yeah it's a good thing so what is your emotional age this time oh 65 what was it last time 63 <laughs> yeah you're pretty consistent on that okay and why is that is that because you're so evolved no it's because that's what my emotional age feels like <laughs> uh give us a book recommendation oh there was such a good one i was thinking people always ask me for book recommendations and it was like one of the best things i've read this year and it's about some, it was about Vietnamese boat people. And was it Cicely Penn? Yes. And what was her, and what was the book called? Wandering Souls. Yeah. Beautiful book. Read that everyone. And what else do I like? Oh, anything by Natalie Haynes. Oh yeah. We have been sold these Greek myths and they have been reinterpreted by Victorian gentlemen and, and uh, translators translated by them and then we got a very sort of sexist view of the all the original stories and the scholar Natalie Haynes has retranscribed the original Greek and 
reinterpret them and they're they're much more accessible and nice to women now. And when I first read, I think I, I read A Thousand Ships was the first book I read of hers, just made me weep because I thought, this is my story. This is our story, the story that hasn't been heard. And it, it made me feel like I've been thinking of myself as a second-class citizen all this time, unconsciously. Mm-hmm. And then to, to read that, it was like such a good education for me. So if you haven't read it, read A Thousand Ships by Natalie Haynes, and then you'll read all her other books as well. Yeah, she really, she started the whole, because there's a, there's so much now rewriting of Greek mythology, isn't there? But she yeah. really, she started it. Uh, what else? I mean, um, The Secret Hours by Mick Heron. And is it a Slow Horses one or is it a standalone? Well, is it a Slow House one or not? It says it's a standalone, but some old friends will pop up in it. Oh. So that's a fun book. I do love reading. I do love it. What advice would you give younger women? Don't be afraid to be who you are. Don't put energy into being who you think you should be. Be who you are. It's not only good enough, it's better than anything else. Be who you are. Don't be who you think you ought to be. It's enough. And I'm going to cheat and ask you another question. What advice would you give women now coming through perimenopause? Be really nice to yourselves. Uh, Do all the self-care. You're being torn in two because you're looking after your children and your parents. And uh, you're having a massive hormonal change. And it's like the worst PMT you've ever had. And I personally took HRT and (laughs) like 17 years later, I'm still taking it because I love it. (laughs) And because if I stop taking it, I get in a really grumpy mood. I think I need the estrogen. Maybe I don't need the estrogen. I've, I've got a friend who said, oh, no, don't take estrogen. Enjoy the anger. But I just don't enjoy the anger. So I, I... I like HRT. Yeah, I can't imagine stopping anytime soon, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, sleep. You don't sleep when you're having a hot flush every 10 minutes. So, yeah, it's a really tricky time. And you have my, and if you're going through it, you have my, you have my love. And I hope it helps. Who's your old bird role model? Joan Bakewell. Why? I've worked with her recently. She's fantastic. She's 90, sharp as a tack. Funny, warm, very, very bright, very interesting, relaxed, and enjoys working and works age 90. I want to work age 90, not in the afternoons, yeah. but I do want to be working age 90 if I'm still here. I'd, I'd like to be Joan, yeah, be more Joan. Oh, hello, look who's here. Oh, I knew if I hung on long enough. Look who's Get here. Kevin. Kevin. Hello, Kevin's made an entrance. Yeah, he has probably a bowl's empty or something. Do you like my mug? I can't see it because Kevin's bum's in the way. Oh, it says prepare to feed the fat. <laughs> right, his bum is right in my face now. Oh, oh, yeah, I had a full a full frontal bum then. Thanks, Kevin. What's your superpower? Uh, my superpower is that I know I'm mortal, so I've uh, got to make the most of my time. That is really good. That is really good. Yeah, I just thought of that just off the top. More, okay, how many fucks do you give? Oh, I thought you meant how many fucks have I had? <laughs> <laughs> you can tell me that too if you want. <laughs> uh, I give all the fucks. I give all the fucks. Um, I mean, I really care. 
Uh, I care what people think about me. I, 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 um, not, not everyone, but, but um, I've got a mail bag that's full of people complaining about me because of my job at the Observer. And yeah, I do care. And I try not to let it hurt me too much, but um, you do get to me, you know. I do care what people think. And did they write to you to tell you that they did? I'm wrong, yeah. Yeah, what really helps was when I get um, a, a mansplainer writing me to tell me I'm wrong, is if I read it out loud to my husband and we have a good laugh. <laughs> yeah, that gives me slightly less fucks. Right, so tell me your tour dates. Oh, Okay, Edinburgh, 15th of October, Assembly Rooms. 17th of October, Story House, Chester. 20th of October, Bloomsbury Theatre, London. 22nd, Frome Memorial Theatre, Zumazet. 23rd, St George's, Bristol. 25th, Worthing. 29th, Guildford. 31st, Bury St Edmunds. The 1st of November, Colchester. That's my birthday, everyone. <laughs> and on the 3rd of November, Manchester. And you can find it all on www.fame.co.uk forward slash Philippa hyphen Perry. There we go. Come and ask me anything and I'll give you the, the benefit of my age experience, psychotherapy training and sense of humour. <laughs> Thank you, Philippa. That is so brilliant. And we got to talk long enough to see Kevin's bum as well. What more can you want on the Thursday morning? Look what he's doing now. He's he's trying to he's just beginning to destroy the headphones. He's biting them. Stop it. Okay, good to talk to you. I'll let you go now. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to see you. We could talk all day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like my conversations with Julia Cameron and Sarah Knight. You'll find a link to them in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. If you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras, and more.